we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Courtney, we're back once again with an in-person chat with a guest. Well, hey, so exciting to finally have in-person conversations. Yes. Although the online's been pretty good. Uh, yeah. Know, it's not bad at all, but... You know, in person, just yeah, you get the vibe more. It's yeah, it's good. The mm. online, you know, it has its pluses and minuses. Um, mm. When it comes to kind of getting all the files from people, you know, that they've recorded in their living room or in their home office or in their mm-hmm. office at work or whatever, you you get some weird and wonderful differences. You know, <laughs> like somebody's computer fan is really loud, or oh, there's a cat no, in the background, yeah, or yeah. So you know, we try and do a a reasonable job of filtering some of that out. That's that's all you, Craig. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> so thank but, you. But obviously, when people are listening, they can they can hear. You know that Absolutely. we're not in the same room. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that my voice is going to sound different to yours, which mm-hmm. is going to sound different to the guests. But yeah, anyway. So yeah, it is nice. We're all speaking into the same microphone Yay. type of microphone now. Yes. And yes. yeah, um, this week we have a great conversation with Pete Townsend. And now you might be wondering, I've heard that name before somewhere, (laughs) and you have, but it's not that Pete Townsend, which we clarify in our conversation with Pete. This this Pete is from um, Hepatitis WA, uh, and he is the volunteer coordinator. Yep. Yes. That's right. For the the non-for-profit, who, you know, I think is equally as exciting. Yeah. And interesting. Yeah. And we have a great conversation. Um, so Pete's a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, and he takes us through a little bit of his life experience and um, some of the things he's done, you know, some of the wonderful adventures that he's had, and obviously navigating health problems over the mm-hmm. years and some pretty um, quite serious and confronting kind of challenges that he's personally faced and that his loved ones have faced over the years. Yeah. Um, so so this podcast does come with a just a, a light warning, I would say, of, you know, there's some serious stuff that's talked about here. And, yeah. you know, Pete does a fantastic job talking yeah. about his experiences, but it might be um, confronting for it some people. It can be confronting. Um, you know, we do talk about injecting drug use because that's a, a big part of what um, – the work they do yeah. at Hepatitis WA is their needle and syringe exchange. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just actually a needle and syringe program because they don't actually necessarily exchange anymore. Yep. Um, but yeah, we sort of go through the origins of the service and how it started and where it is now. Um, but without giving too much away, we'll let you guys listen and we'll be back with a few comments at the end. Yeah, but yeah, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Pete Townsend onto the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Pete. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, as somebody who has a um, a surname that people make fun of, you've got a whole name that people might make fun of. (laughs) Uh, It it depends on your generation, I think. Actually, yeah. Yeah. If you if you're under sort of 
35 years of age, it means nothing to people. But yeah. I did, I did that Google. Pete Townsend actually has an H in his name and I don't. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. There yeah. you go. That makes a bit I, yeah. I did Google uh, just so I could, like, see what you looked like beforehand so I knew who I was um, going to talk to. And I'm like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> this is not the right person. <laughs> and there's an older Pete Townsend who was going to marry um, Princess Margaret but wasn't okay. allowed to. Yeah. So it really depends on your generation. Yeah, yeah. there you okay. go. Yeah. Uh, there's so many puns that could come, like who puns. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've heard them all. <laughs> Obviously, generation's one of them. Yeah. And then uh, the other one would be, so we normally start um, podcasts by getting people to just tell us, who who are you? Um, well, who am I? Yeah, well, my name's Pete Townsend and um, I'm from Perth. I work at uh, Hepatitis WA um, and I've been living back in Perth um, for the last couple of years um, after over 30, 35 years away, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, lived in all sorts of places, um, Sydney, London, all over Germany, Spain, Mm-hmm. Um and yes, had no plans to come back to Australia, but um, well, life mm-hmm. is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit about that. Um, Europe, Germany, and Spain. What were you doing over there? Um, oh, what wasn't I doing actually? <laughs> what sort of jobs haven't I had? Um, I I started my you know working career just like everybody else, going from job to job and wondering what the hell I do with my life. I ended up moving to Sydney. Um. Uh, at a pretty young age, about 19, um, I'd uh, been HIV positive already for a year and a half. Um, so back in the 1980s, that was a bit of a scary prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, and ended up moving to Sydney really because I um, I wanted to be among my peers. And that certainly wasn't the case here in little old Perth back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty sleepy small city. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's what took me to the big smoke and um i'd always wanted to to work for airlines mm-hmm. so um that was my first big love and uh travel um so i did um a good six years doing that traveled for a year came back to sydney um and yeah a lot of things happened during those times <laughs> in sydney and maybe we'll expand on that a little bit later on yep um, because it certainly affected the choices that I made in my life mm-hmm. um, and a lot of choices to do with the meaning of health was what mm-hmm. we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, um, I left Sydney uh, not really because I wanted to but um, because I had to and ended up in London. Um, uh, went into the airline industry again in, in London and became a flight attendant. So I was based in Germany for about five years, mm-hmm. um, although – you know, home digs was London. I hardly spent any time there over a five-year period um, and loved Germany, loved my work um, and uh, ended up settling down in London, um, um, meeting um, the one mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, we were together for a very long time in London and then moved to Spain. Mm-hmm. So, what yeah. part of Spain did you move to? Ibiza. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the islands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lived in Barcelona for a number of years. Yeah, it's yeah. quite magical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I managed to visit Ibiza once as well, which yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the party side yeah. to it, but yeah, we were more the hippie side, the growing your own food and yeah, <laughs> oh, that's so the alternative. It's a beautiful <laughs> island when you get away from the the tourist parts. It's, it's very yeah. very special place. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing. 
Yeah. yeah. So just um, going back, so just remind me what year it was when you said you contracted HIV. Uh, so I, I found out in 1983. Yeah. Well. Um, um, and sort of in those days, it was the days of the Grim Reaper campaign and yeah. uh, a lot of discrimination, a lot of stigma. Mm. Um, gay rights, as they were called then, there wasn't so many letters in the in the mm-hmm. alphabet. It wasn't LGBTQI plus. It was just it's gay. Gay. Yeah. Um, um, of course, that was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're dealing with a lot of stigma, a lot of changing of laws and attitudes, um, and then HIV came along to muddy those waters and make it even more complicated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was really good to be in a place like Sydney. Mm. Um, particularly in the eastern suburbs where I lived, um, were around about, I think the figures were like 70% of, of the population in sort of four or five suburbs yeah. identify as gay or lesbian. So you yeah. really felt like you were in a ghetto, like in your own little yeah. bubble, which was pretty well needed uh-huh. um, considering what we were facing. Yeah. yeah. And from a health point of view, obviously now we have – really effective treatments. So yeah. HIV is not the sort of Russian roulette that it once was before they were available. Obviously, there's right. some pretty high-profile people that have passed away from HIV before that. Um, so what was your experience, you know, discovering treatments and, you know, being able to manage that? Um, it was pretty um, traumatic, actually. Um, um, I had a partner at the time who was also HIV positive and he was um, often sick. Um, he nearly died four or five times. Um, and in those early days, there was just experimental treatment. And um, for the most part, it was it was completely toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many friends and, um, and peers and, um, um, shall I say, just people that you knew um, in the community that, you know, one day you'd see them and they weren't well or they had Carposi's sarcoma all over their faces and you knew you'd had a relationship of some sort with them before and it was like, was I next? Mm. Um, it was pretty scary and people were really guinea pigs as far as the medication was concerned. Mm. Um, I certainly lost quite a few friends to the toxicity of AZT and those earlier treatments. Um, mm. That's what they died of, not just the complications of AIDS-related conditions. Mm. Um, it was pretty scary, mm. yeah. Yeah, because a lot of these things have been depicted in the media, in, you know, popular media now, you know, through the Dallas Buyers Club and recently It's a Sin, that series that you yes. might be aware of yeah. um, from the UK. Yeah, I mean, how, how close to reality were some of those things? Um, pretty close to reality. Um I think that It's a Sin show is definitely made for a modern audience. I don't mm-hmm. think it was quite real enough. Mm-hmm. I think it was they – were, they were certainly showing a diversity in that show that really didn't exist okay. en masse um, in those days. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to say um, that there wasn't diversity. There was, but it wasn't on show yeah. like, like it was depicted in that, in that um, series. However um, – it really nailed the whole stigma and shame and uh, the fear that was going around. Mm. Um, so I thought it was pretty powerful mm. um, representation of the times. Um, you would have been living or having, yeah, spending time in London kind of when that was set, right? Um, so that was a little bit earlier than when I was in London. I was okay. in, um, I didn't move to London until 97. Oh, okay. So, um, 
I spent most of my time in Sydney, which was going through exactly the same thing as San Francisco, New York, London, um, all of the the big major gay centres of yeah. the world. Um, and it it was like we were at war, mm-hmm. but in wartime, there's also a lot of fun to be had. Yeah. And um, that's about dealing with fear, with stigma, with shame, with... Uh, being attacked on every level yeah. um, of your existence, mm. um, and that's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting how I don't know. A lot of us dealt with these uh, issues of our health or our impending doom um, with the way that uh, there was a real sense of community, much more than exists now. Um, <clears throat> there was certainly um, very visible community and people helped each other out because there was no choice mm-hmm. at the beginning. Slowly things began to change, very slowly. Um, but uh, you certainly um, had to face all those things, but part and parcel of that was fundraising, was um, uh, lobbying and all of that, and that needs money. And so the best way of... You know, raising all those funds was by partying mm-hmm. and throwing huge parties and nobody knows how to throw a party like the gay community. <laughs> um, and it was party with abandon. Yeah. That said, there was a lot of drugs, mm-hmm. um, a lot of uh, risky behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I don't I don't defend that or, or deny it. Um, uh, it's just what it, what it was. Yeah. But... Interestingly, I never saw one piece of violence or one death from drugs mm-hmm. or anything like that ever happen mm-hmm. from that, that that began from within the community. Yeah. Certainly there was violence and everything that was perpetrated yeah. on the community from, from without, yeah. but not within. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, so... Tell us a little bit more about that because it is a bit of a stereotype, I think, that it's a party scene and, you know, there's heavy drug use and all that sort of things. What, why do you think that was happening? Is that part of dealing with that sort of stigma and that sort of discrimination? Um, uh, I think that, you know, there's always been that cutting edge to um, any marginalised society uh, where to deal with being on the outsides of the norm, so to speak, Um and it's part of the human experience as well that um, drugs have always been part of of that and discovering who you are, but also um, uh, attending to the wounds that you hold because you are held different from the rest of community. Um, I think society in general, uh, certainly religion has a lot to play with it um, on how that affects somebody's self-esteem, um, how they feel about themselves, um, how sexuality, that difference, that, that is different from the accepted norm at the time, um, was viewed and how that affects people. Mm. And how do you negotiate that? How do you change? And how do you discover um, your worth in all of that? And how do you discover uh, those people that feel the same as you do and identify the same as you do? And part and parcel of that is is this big... Uh, melting pot of um, of fear, loathing, love, uh, hope, um, and yeah, 
and, and colorfulness mm-hmm. that, that comes with everything that is alternative, mm-hmm. be that, you know, any letter of the LGBTQI+. Um, and that was certainly gelling in a huge way and gaining confidence and breaking down barriers um, all at the same time with essentially what was to be at war. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did you face the same level of discrimination from medical doctors and things like that? At the beginning. At the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, in fact, I remember um, when I got my diagnosis, I knew I was HIV positive um, before there was even a name for HIV. It was called um, gay cancer. And I remember, um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I remember I was living in Melbourne for a short time before I moved to Sydney and um, I had this terrible illness. I was sick in bed for about six weeks, um, seroconversion illness. Um, gee, I was sick. And I, and wasn't long after that that I recovered from that and um, the guy that I was having a relation, sort of a casual relationship with, got very ill. And I knew, oh, okay. I've got the bug. Mm. Um, but um, the actual test for it to confirm didn't come out, f- you know, for some time after that. It was about a year after that that I, I was actually diagnosed when I was in Sydney. And I had a gay doctor mm. and he told me that I was going to die in six months mm. um, and uh, that I should be ashamed of my actions. <laughs> <laughs> You don't tell a 19-year-old that. And I remember telling him, you know, add expletives here. Fair enough. um, All the rest of them and, you know, uh, storming out of the the office, Mm. of the doctor's office. Mm. The funny, maybe it's not funny, (laughs) but the ironic thing is is that he died of an AIDS-related illness within a few months, and I'm still here. Right, yeah, <laughs> karma, mad, yeah, man. Um, so you know, it came from all quarters, and it certainly came from a lot of um, uh, fear and ignorance um, throughout the community. But even in the medical establishment, they didn't know anything about it. They didn't know that you know the full transmission route they didn't know the risks involved at the beginning so you were really treated like a complete pariah and if you did have to engage with um medical personnel especially if you were um visiting friends in hospital or what have you you had to be you know completely wrapped up like like you see now in the COVID kind of days, hazmat suits, um, hazmat suits, all those kinds of things. Nobody actually was allowed to touch anybody. Mm. Um, And um, a lot of these um, young men that were, well, of course it's not, wasn't just young men that got HIV, but this was the cold face of it. Um, You know, were stuck in rooms alone for weeks or months on end. Um, very difficult for us to get in to see our loved ones, our friends, our lovers, our mates. Mm. And then there was the aftermath of all of that, you know. Mm. Um, quite often families had wanted nothing to do with, you know, their child that had died because of shame. So we would be organising funerals and things like that and how do you pay for that? We would be doing fundraisers in the community all these kinds of things, or the opposite would happen. Suddenly the family would swoop in, take everything and not acknowledge the friendships or the relationships, the partners and things like that. 
that had been in that, that person's life and supported them right up to their passing. And yeah. they were not, they were excluded from, you know, uh, any funeral services or, or wills or anything like this. Yeah. It was really terrible. I feel like a lot of this stems, obviously, I think theology has a large part to play in those attitudes because it was something that was seen outside of what was what God wanted or what Jesus would approve of and all that sort of thing yeah. traditionally. But I also think that our understanding of the psychology behind sexuality has yeah. improved a lot. And I didn't realise until I went to university as a sort of mature age student that it's actually sort of predetermined from birth, like you're born, you know, gay or straight. Um, because we'd always been sort of told it was a, ch- a lifestyle choice and all this sort of thing. And I feel yeah. like that's sort of, that's oh, I love that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, how many times have I been asked that, you know, when did you decide that you were gay? And my stock standard answer is when did you decide that you were straight? Yeah. You know, what was it? What happened to you that made you attracted to the yeah. opposite sex, you yeah. know? Um, and it stops people in their tracks <laughs> or it gets them angry. Yeah. yeah, but I, I, you know, thinking now too, I, I realised that it was an amazing time to live through in the in the early eighties, particularly in Australia. I mean, all around the world, I think. But all these things changed. Mm. There was this seismic shift in attitudes um, to all sorts of things, and people were letting go of a lot of stuff that were hangovers mm. um, from days gone by and Australia was becoming suddenly multicultural, for example, and was opening up to the world and people could travel and all sorts of different influences were coming in and um, and the relentlessness with which um, the gay community demanded visibility and rights and treatments and, uh, you know, human rights, mm. I guess, Um we're all part of that, and um, it's only now, as I'm a bit older, that I realise, oh, wow, you know, um, I lived through something that was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of young people that would have no idea about it as well. Yeah, I was it, going to just say that. Like, yeah. what, what's your observation of younger members of the gay community now who've obviously grown up in a different time? You know, yeah. what differences like, do you notice about the things they're concerned with? And um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess there, are, there, there's much more this concern about identity politics and um, and not so much a concern about um, sexuality. Um, that is all taken away. It's really about an individual's personal um, identity, and I think that this is ultimately a good thing. Sometimes I think that the pendulum swung a little bit too far, and we have to come to a to an easy resting place that that you know involves all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, any great change, there's always going to be these swings mm-hmm. and these extremes, and that's all part of the process, and that's quite normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a little bit at the risk of sounding like a you know a grumpy old person, I suppose, <laughs> um, and I'm not old, by the way. Um, I'm only fifty something. Um, I'm still wondering what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. Um, but I do. I am a bit dumbfounded that um, in this age of information, where anything is available to you 
you know, on this little thing that you keep in your, you know, in your pocket, the level of ignorance of what has happened before mm. is astounding mm. and quite sad and it bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, there are, you know, many, many young people that have the most amazing, brilliant ideas of inclusiveness and non-judgmentalness and acceptance that is to them normal and I think that proves that, you know, what happened in the 80s and started off from there, you know, mm. there, there's really good things to take out of that. Um, yeah. And um, so it's not, a, it's not a black and white, it's not a binary kind of thing going on here and there is this forces in the world to make us think only bi binary. Mm. And I think that the, um, the younger generations are rallying against that binariness Mm -hmm. And I champion that, and that gives me great hope um, mm. because, you know, there's no black and white. There's just all these amazing shades of grey yeah. in, in the world. And I think in the West as well, we sort of are ignorant to the fact that this has been accepted in older civilizations for a long time. They have more than two genders mm -hmm. and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And those those non-sort of male and female genders are kind of celebrated as having special powers in some cases and, mm. you know. I, and I think that's very true. And mm. and I've always, I was very lucky when I was a, um, a young man because um, I came into contact with quite a few um, older guys that really were quite wise and um, passed on that knowledge. And there was kind of like a brotherhood mm. amongst the community and a sisterhood and there was a lot of drag queens who um, are basically the keeper of law sort of thing. And um, all of that information was really easily accessible on a one-to-one -one personal and community level, human level. This was before mobile phones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you made an arrangement with somebody over the phone, a landline, mm -hmm. um, and that might be three months ahead and you stuck to it. Yeah. You know, turned you up. turned up. Yeah. Um, so there was this inherent trust with the, those people that were part of your life. Mm. Um, and I think that um, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in a period like that. Um, we don't have a visible gay community anywhere in the world anymore. It's online mm -hmm. or it's on television. But there's no gay ghetto, and I really miss that. Mm -hmm. right. Some people say that's a bad thing and we shouldn't have that and that it should just be all disseminated through society, and I get that too. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not against that. Mm. But I do miss mm. that brotherhood, and yeah. many of those those guys were the first to die. Mm. Right. Um, and so there is... Um, um, this thought that I always had that um, there was a um, sort of magic about um, being a gay man and that in the way that I made love to people or the way that I had relationships with people that I should engender that, that magic into that because it was not the norm. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a certain specialness about that. Um, and you can change the way that people think. Mm. I also think that it's a really good counterbalance. I think it's completely natural. This, 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 um, this 
whole variety of gender and sexuality to balance out things. And when we see that we're locked into just male or female or, you know, uh, passive or, or um, dominant roles, then we have all this toxicity, mm. you know. And I always kind of saw my role as a gay man as being, you know, one way, one tool in the toolbox of being able to chip away at this um, horrendous kind of um, – binariness around sexuality and society mm -hmm. that had up until then had complete and utter control of us. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought it might be a good idea to sort of focus a little bit on the other side of your experience that's kind of informing your work here at Hepatitis WA, mm -hmm. um, obviously involving drug use and, and that sort of things. Um, what are you happy to share with us about? Uh, look, I'm an open book and I yeah. don't mind sharing everything. You know, I've had um, a lot of experience with drugs and it's certainly um, uh, I've used a lot of drugs in all sorts of different ways. I've never been a person that relied on them. They were always an enhancement to life for me mm -hmm. but i can't say that a lot of my peers were like that and mm -hmm. indeed you know the first love of my life his life was ruined by meth and my life was ruined by his life being ruined by meth mm -hmm. um i ended that relationship and went to london because um everything was gone mm -hmm. you know monetarily relationship everything you know and it was like well i gotta save myself now mm -hmm. it was heartbreaking but Having had those experiences, um, I also understand that um, that everybody reacts to drugs in a very different way, and so therefore you've got to have a great deal of empathy and understanding about who you're dealing with. And I guess everything that's happened <clears throat> in my life has led me up to this point where now I work with at Hepatitis WA. Part of um, the thing that we do here, amongst you know education. You know, our mission is to eliminate hepatitis C by 2030 and to deal with um, with hepatitis B and other forms of bloodborne viruses. Um, but part of that is um, that we run an NSP, a needle and syringe project. So that's based on harm minimization. It's not about telling people, yes, you can or can't do drugs. Mm. It's about recognizing that there's always a number of people in the community that mm -hmm. choose that method um, to deliver their drugs to their body. Yeah. And so by having an NSP, um, we can cut down some of the um, harms associated with that. So sharing equipment, for example, is a way that you um, can spread bloodborne viruses. If people have access to free and uh, clean injecting equipment, the chances of that happening are dramatically reduced. Um, and in fact, it goes back that whole ethos and the way I feel so strongly about it goes back to my days in Sydney mm -hmm. where um, a lot of us were on the streets um, uh, giving out free um, um, needles and syringes primarily to the rent boys and to the working girls mm -hmm. in King's Cross and Darlinghurst because we knew that the next step of HIV would be into the greater community. Yeah. We were arrested, we were jailed, we were never charged, mm -hmm. and we had a really great health minister back then, um, Neil Blewett, um, um, who very quickly saw that this was a good idea. And this is one of the reasons why we have relatively very few HIV um, uh, numbers through that period compared to 
other uh, countries that we can measure ourselves by. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that whole thought of harm minimization has always been part of of me, mm -hmm. and it's always been part of my personal um, relationship to using drugs. Mm -hmm. um, that they can be fun, and they can they do have a place in life, but you've got to have a very measured and balanced attitude towards them. Mm -hmm. And the moment that you're not, it's the moment you're asking for trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've sort of, it, it, by pushing it into the shadows, you sort of increase the risks associated with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, we've got to realize too, that people do drugs for all sorts of different reasons. And one of the reasons that we see them doing, well, a lot of the reasons are poverty, are shame, are, um, discrimination, um, or being marginalised, trauma, all these kinds of things mm. inform somebody's use of an illicit substance. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many substances out there which, you know, are legal and taxed and all the rest of it, e.g. alcohol and tobacco. Mm. If we applied that same logic to most other drugs, yeah. um, I think there would be a completely different landscape. They've tried that with alcohol in the past in some jurisdictions like in America with prohibition and clearly it didn't work. Well, prohibition, <laughs> yeah, has never worked in any, f and it only yeah. only causes a, a black market and a criminal element. Yeah. Um, and we're still wrestling with that criminal element, you know, yeah. mafias all over the world because of US prohibition. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's so many misconceptions about drugs, and in particular, like the the needle, um, the safe needle programs and things like that. Um, I think, yeah, the common misconception is that you're just supporting the behaviours, um, mm. and it can be difficult to explain that harm minimisation yeah. aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, I often revert to the money thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Money's <laughs> a good know, way to explain things. <laughs> for every dollar you spend on a needle, uh, on, on, on a needle and syringe uh, project, you're saving upwards of, you know, between 4 and $7 in the health system yeah. Yeah. and probably even more, more you know. Yeah. So it's, mm. you know, you can always throw that economic argument yeah. at people, which does help. People love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, look, drug policy, I mean, we could talk, we could just do a whole podcast on that and, yeah, you know, it's it's been well prosecuted and it's needle and syringe programs and that sort of thing is one space where the evidence gets routinely ignored, Yeah, like, mm -hmm. you know, as to the effectiveness and the consequences of doing it versus not doing it. It's clear there's no... There's no grey areas anymore. Like it's obvious that it works. Purely um, people's beliefs, and it's just like yeah, moral beliefs really that yeah. that are driving that. I think, mm -hmm. um, and I think as gen as the generations that are in power, yeah, get sort of you know younger, yeah, <laughs> they become younger demographically and you know more progressive. Well, I think yeah. that's that's part of it, and I also think that the way that uh, here in this country. In Australia, that we have this relationship between politics and uh, those who lead our police forces. Yeah. Um, if there was an independence in in uh, the the leadership of police mm. that didn't necessarily report to a minister, mm. we might actually because there's a lot of people in 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 police mm. that want huge changes, but yep. that can't happen because it directly affects politics. Yeah. Um, you only have to look at Canada to see a different way of doing things to see yeah. how much more ahead they are in that but anyway thought, we could yeah. we could we could go you know <laughs> down any kind of lane on oh, this one yeah. couldn't yeah. we for anyone listening if you want a, a a very easy and quick snapshot of how it can be done differently just walk down east hastings street in vancouver and you'll yeah. see
wanted to sort of pivot to to hepatitis C mm-hmm. because that's kind of like how HIV the treatments and whatnot have improved over time. The the landscape's really changed with yeah. Hep C, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it has. Um, so um, I've also got lived experience of hepatitis C. Um, it was when I moved to London. Um, I'd been there for some years, and um, then a lot of gay men were coming down with hepatitis C. Um, there's always blood involved in in uh, sex between men, um, even if it's minute and you can't see it. Um, and so this became like a almost a new, whole new kind of plague. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those old monsters came up to play: stigma, fear, shame regret, all of those kinds of things. Um, uh, you saw um, these divisions happen w- even with amongst gay men, you know, mm. that fear that came up again. And certainly the treatment for hepatitis C in the early days was pretty rough, um, uh, was almost like um, chemotherapy. Mm. Only worked in about 40 to 45% mm-hmm. of cases and you could be on this medication for up to a year and a half with devastating yes interferon devastating side effects Mm. um um, i lost quite a few mates um to hepatitis c and i lost quite a few friends to suicide that Mm. were in the middle of that treatment also had effect on people's mental health Mm. and their brain chemistry um so it was pretty pretty scary and then um to find out that I had hepatitis C, actually found out through my partner who'd had a previous relationship with somebody. We had never done any particularly risky behaviour, um, but when he found out from this previous um, partner that he'd had that they were hepatitis C positive, we went off and got a test just to be on the safe side. And we're quite devastated to learn that we had Hep C because mm. it's an insidious thing. You don't, you don't, you don't get this big uh, reaction to. Um, being affected by the virus. Some people might feel a bit off for a few days and mistake it for just feeling a bit of a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sits there silently doing damage to your liver over many, many years. So um, it could have been anything up to 10, 15 years um, that we were HCV positive. Mm-hmm. The reaction, however, between Hep C and HIV is quite unique. Mm-hmm. So being HIV positive... Um, uh, I'd been HIV positive for, oh, um, I guess, more than 25 years by this time. And uh, I, w- I had something which uh, a lot of long-term HIV positive people have, um, uh, which is uh, y- your joints become very inflamed. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it can, it can bother you for an hour or two. It can bother you for a day or two. It can bother you for a week or two. Mm. And then it completely goes away again. Mm. Um, and the fatigue that goes along with it. This was exacerbated with hepatitis C. They now know that the combination of these two viruses working in in um, tandem with each other can cause this um, and a whole bunch of other things. So for me, it became quite um, apparent that, you know, I really got to do something about this, but I was not going to do the interferon. Mm-hmm. There were rumours around in the early days that, treatment was coming um that was informed a lot by um the antiretrovirals that now treat hiv Mm -hmm. and keep it from replicating and um uh, allow somebody to live a perfectly uh normal life Mm -hmm. um and so the hep c treatment is actually a cure Mm 
Okay. Um, it was bittersweet going on to that. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into all yeah, that kind of thing or not. Yeah, happy to. So, um, uh, my partner and I had moved to Spain and we were living our best life, having a wonderful, wonderful life. And one of the reasons that we moved is because we knew that we were hep C positive and we were waiting for the new treatment to come. So we wanted to completely change our lifestyle and get away from stress. Um, we lived in a, in a little brick stone place in the countryside and grew our own food and just, you know, lived on the smell of an oil rag and I think we've never been so happy in our lives. It was just magical. And um, all of a sudden, Kinan got very ill and it was um, was apparent that something really big was going on. None of the doctors in Spain could work out what it was. Um, and so we eventually um, went back to England where we'd been paying our taxes because you could do that um, mm -hmm. before Brexit. Um, so we were covered under the NHS there. So we went back and it. Uh, by the time we got back, um, that drive through through Spain and France to get back to England, uh, you know, he was just deteriorating in front of my eyes. And um, turned out after six weeks in hospital, um, that he had the rarest form of a disease called NET, which is a very rare cancer, mm. similar to the cancer that um, Steve Jobs uh, died from, oh, yeah. the CEO yeah. of Apple. Yeah. Um, Kinam was only the 11th person in the UK ever to be diagnosed with this particular form of NET, mm -hmm. and there's no treatment. Right. Um, so um, the next seven months was hell, and... Um, we there was only a, an experimental treatment which was ozone therapy um mm -hmm. at seven thousand pounds a week right you can mm -hmm. imagine we had to sell everything we owned and mm -hmm. um kinan passed away anyway um and that left me devastated mm -hmm. um five days later followed by my mother wow. the day of kinan's funeral our best friend and within three months my six closest friends it was unbelievable wow um i was completely broken and um then the doctor says oh by the way we want to treat you for hep c <laughs> yeah. and at that point i'm so punch drunk mm. um <clears throat> that i just said yeah you know i just did what i was told i was completely mm. broken mm -hmm. um but even in that state taking the treatment for hepatitis c it was a walk in the park mm. i had Virtually no side effects. Um, yeah, I couldn't sleep or anything like that, but I think that was more to do with the emotional state that I was else, in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and certainly um, after those three months that I was on the one tablet a day, it didn't make a big difference to to my well-being um, uh, while I was on that. Um, but within a month or two of finishing the treatment, Boy, did I feel different. Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, I felt 20 years younger, even amongst all of this grief and this this carnage that my life was. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was remarkable. Um, the aches and the pains that I was getting um, because of this, what's called polyarthropathy, this, this interaction between um, hepatitis C and HIV, disappeared overnight, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I could think straight, even through all of this 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 tragedy, um, and I realised that I 
been living with a kind of brain fog because of the hepatitis C. Um, and these things creep on you so slowly that you don't actually realize, you know, realize what's happening to you. I've certainly exhausted um, on all sorts of levels, physically, emotionally, mentally, um, dealing with what had happened to Kinan, and he required 24-7 treatment mm. um, during this horrible illness. And I barely slept an hour for seven or eight months, you yep. know, um, a night. So um, to be relieved of hep C, the, the difference and and the way that it supported my recovery was extraordinary. Mm. And certainly my story is a little bit more extreme than others, mm. but um, I've seen that also happen in other people, uh, peers, friends in London, and then since working here at Hepatitis WA, um, I've seen people come through our clinic, through our NSP, engage with the treatment, go on the treatment, uh, and they look different, they act different, they feel different, mm -hmm. you know, these following months after treatment. And um, it's just a shot in the arm for people. It's really very easy to, um, uh, to stick to and the benefits are extraordinary. Do you think that's one of the reasons why you joined Hepatitis WA is like it you was. know so what it can do? So I, I ended up coming back to Australia, not really wanting to, but um, I was just such a mess and nothing was the same after all of this loss. And um, um, I came back and I decided to retrain. So I did um, some studies in community services. <clears throat> I really at that point needed something that was had some worth to it mm -hmm. because life for me really had no meaning. And I was really struggling um, um, with my mental health. Um, <clears throat> I could barely speak to anybody without bursting into tears. I was just a mess. And these studies really gave me a focus. And I was lucky enough to do um, student placement yeah. here at Hepatitis WA. And <clears throat> I put my hand up for it in the first place because I'd gone through hep C treatment. And I thought, well, you know, this might be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And it was the perfect fit. And not only did it help me in my personal recovery, um, but it just, yeah, it just was the perfect fit. I felt I can actually do something meaningful here. I, I can I can walk the walk and talk the talk because I've been down this road. Um, and having that meaning in my work was everything to me. And I was also surrounded by people that um, either have a personal experience of hep C um, or, you know, are at the coalface and that or know people that have. And so everyone is very supportive and very caring. The whole ethos here um, at HEPWA is um, is really about, um, you know, being able to rid society of this curable virus mm. um, and change people's life. Also, when you're cured of hep C, you really are um, kind of feeling quite, renewed and i see it with people that um we're lucky in this country that um people that continue to use drugs or inject drugs are not denied treatment for hep c mm. but i see time and time again through my work um at here people that then after being cured of hep c are able to make better decisions about their general health and that affects their drug use yeah. um yeah. It's really, really fascinating. Now, that doesn't apply to every single person, mm. but it applies to a lot. 
and yeah it's a similar principle to like the housing first philosophy whereas if you house somebody then they start to address the other things exactly in their life and yeah yeah it's like a it's like this is their major health problem. If you address that, then the rest of their health issues start getting taken care of. It's that multi-morbidity aspect. Yeah. yeah. Missing one little thing can trigger all the other things to improve as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, interesting stuff. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. Just just for people listening who might not be familiar with the HEPs, the, sorry, the, yeah, HEPC treatment, um, what does it involve? Like how long does it take? And so depending on the genotype that you have, it's between eight and 12 weeks, mm-hmm. one pill a day, basically. In some circumstances, it can be multiple pills, but um, but very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy um, medication to tolerate. Yeah. Um, some people um, report having some fatigue mm-hmm. um, for the first couple of weeks while they're on the medicine, yeah. and that's very normal as the, as the liver starts to detoxify. Um, and, um, but then that certainly goes away. Some people report some sleeplessness at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but by and large, there are next to no, uh, no adverse effects of taking the medication. Uh, yeah. very, very easy to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and very easy for people with, uh, chaotic lifestyles to, you know, incorporate that into their, into their life. Mm-hmm. And that's a game changer for, for, when you're talking about um, people that have chaotic lives, um, um, if you're, you know, asking them to take up a very complicated treatment, it's less likely that they're going to even, um, you know, want to engage in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they rescheduled it some years ago now for um, people in prison to be able to receive. So they classified it as Schedule 100, which normally under the PBS, the prisons have they don't get access to PBS funding, they've got to provide them separately. Yeah, and, and there are some issues still around uh, treatment in the prison system. For example, people that are on remand can't mm-hmm. receive the treatment and there are reasons around that. Um, um, I'm hoping that that can be ironed out at mm. some point. But, uh, yes, yeah. once certainly someone has been sentenced, they're able to access treatment in the prison system and, unfortunately, the prison system... It's a breeding ground for hep C. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's one of the major public policy reasons why I think they had to reschedule it really because that's where a lot of it <laughs> yes. gets transmitted. And if it's an easy treatment to do, then yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, those of us that work in NSPs and NSEPs would love to see this facility available in the prison system. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a perennial conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, it's not above my pay grade, so I better shut up. <laughs> So just focusing on your role here at um, Hepatitis WA, so you're the volunteer coordinator, is that right? That's right, yeah. So I started off as a volunteer here and a student placement. Mm-hmm. I'm now the volunteers coordinator. So part of my job is to hire volunteers and also interview and do placements for students. Mm-hmm. Um, they come from places like TAFE, um, universities, etc. Um uh, basically, people with a community uh, service or medical um, uh, health kind of focus in their career are the people that are drawn to 
volunteer or do placement with us. Mm-hmm. So my job is to um, identify those people, um, to promote the volunteer program, um, to maintain it, to grow it, um, to mentor and train our volunteers. Mm-hmm. They work mostly in our in our NSP. And so part of that is assuring that every single uh, person that comes in, uh, the whole uh, transaction in the NSP is completely normalised. Mm-hmm so that we deal with things like stigma, shame, all those kinds of things and take that away. Um, and this builds up, you know, trust with us and the community. Yep. Um, they're then more likely to deal with our in-house clinic, um, with education, brief education, all these kinds of things, or to make behavioural changes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of the other thing that we do with our volunteers is um, we get food deliveries from different charities each week so um it's up to the volunteers to display all of that sort all of that and offer that to our clients mm-hmm. um many of who whom come in just for the food mm-hmm. not just for um what we offer in the nsp yep um but it's also a pathway through to education mm-hmm. um so um yeah we train all of our volunteers in that i also prepare them to work um with our health promotion team um, in events, expos, things like that at schools, Mm -hmm. um, universities, um, certain community events with a main focus on hepatitis C, but we also have a complete hep B program as well. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes our volunteers assist um, those people with our hep B program. Yeah. So how many volunteers do you have in there? So it fluctuates and... um, Actually, maintaining volunteer programs is really challenging at the moment mm-hmm. with historic lows in unemployment yep. um, and the COVID stuff that we've all been through. But uh, at present, we've got um, a pool of 21 volunteers oh, cool. yeah. and uh, a couple of them are on other placements at the moment. Mm-hmm. So we're managing with 16, mm-hmm. um, but it can be anywhere between um, 15 to 30 yeah. at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's really good. Uh, pleasing to hear. Mm. Well, if anyone's in Perth and they want to <laughs> volunteer their time, <laughs> please yeah. get in touch with me. It'd be a very interesting um, volunteering placement for health students, so anyone going into health mm. of some sort. It certainly is. Sense. It's not your no- normal run-of-the-mill uh, volunteer position, mm. and for that reason, actually, there is a application and interview yeah. process mm-hmm. because, you know, we've got to make sure that we've got the right fit. Mm. Not everybody... Is, is the right fit for this, yeah. yep. but um, if you are, it's certainly a very um, rewarding volunteer experience. And I think the proof is in the pudding that, you know, we keep volunteers for minimum a year or, or so. We've got several volunteers that have been with us upwards of 10 years. Oh, right. Wow, yeah. Um, so uh, that speaks for itself. Mm. So these are probably people who may have a job and they want to And they still out, volunteer yeah. with yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you have many that have been clients of the service who then progressed to being volunteers? Uh, only one or two in the okay. past. We do have issues around um, protecting people from triggers. Yep. Mm. So if somebody has lived experience in uh, particularly injecting drug use, we want to make sure that they're at a point in their um, their their life mm-hmm. that they've moved away from that and that being in this environment is not going to trigger them yeah. mm-hmm. so we don't have very many people uh, that do that and those that have have certainly um got to a point in, in their life where they're uh 
they're not triggered or um, in any way impacted negatively, yep. but rather we can harness that lived experience in a very positive way mm-hmm. for our clients, but also for the volunteer themselves. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then do you guys interact with many other agencies? Um, so, yeah, we do. We have very close relationships with several other community-based um organizations particularly here in northbridge mm-hmm. right now we're um we're sharing our office with the people from rua who are in some upheaval yep. um that's another story um <laughs> but we're very happy to have them in here and so they're doing some of their casework from us um mm-hmm. certainly we share a lot of uh, the same clients uh, peer-based harm reduction are another service which we deal fairly closely with they are um a peer-led um needle and syringe exchange program and community health and outreach um, organization uh, with WAC as well, WA AIDS Council, they have a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other relationships that we deal with um, some of the, the community organizations around like the street doctor, yep. um, um, legal stuff, um, Palmerston, some of yep. the rehabs, Next Step, mm-hmm. um, what have you. One of the things that I do actually, apart from my volunteer work, is go out and do health presentations on hepatitis at different rehabs. Yeah. Um, I take my volunteers along when I can mm-hmm. to expose them to that as well. Mm. Yeah, so you kind of really branch out amongst many sort of different forms of support that people might need. Yeah, because yeah. the people that come to us have multiple yeah. Uh, needs. Yeah. Um, we know that we can't serve them all, but having those connections with other organisations yeah. um, means that we can usually refer people somewhere else and it's yeah. an informal referral. And now that we have our Dean Clinic um, expanding a great deal, mm-hmm. not just concentrating on hepatitis, but general health, women's health and things like this, yeah. um, certainly that the future is very bright. Yeah, no, it all sounds great. What's your favourite programme of work? FWA does like is it the needle programs or is it the education what would be your like favorite thing to do uh look it's really hard to 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 put a favorite because everything i do i really enjoy mm-hmm. um i certainly really love going out and doing presentations yeah. i really love it and there's a couple of organizations that i that i do regular gigs with that i just i come back feeling just fantastic <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, um, and you learn so much from those people that you're interacting with. Um, uh, for example, I do um, once a month go to Harry Hunter Farm, yep. which is out at Gosnells, where people are going through a uh, step program and uh, recovering from, from um, alcohol, um, essentially, but other drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're ready for information and they're ready to give you uh really pertinent um, information on where they're at and how they're reacting to all the information that we're giving them. And mm-hmm. um, it's very different kettle of fish, say, from example, um, I also go out once every couple of months to um, a behavioural change kind of mm-hmm. uh, place mm-hmm. um, run by Communicare. Um, and it's men that are changing their behaviours around uh, domestic violence um, oh, and being able to talk to them and uh, the things on the line for them and the, the journey that they've taken to get to really some hard realisations and having to make real big changes in their life mm-hmm. um, because, you know, at stake is um, incarceration, um, continued incarceration, ever being able to see their kids again, 
ever being able to have a healthy relationship, mm -hmm. um, whether it's with a partner or with a new partner. Yep. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the line for these men, and um, I must admit I was pretty nervous going into that in the beginning, but it's, it's really enriching going and talking to these mm. kinds of mm. organisations. Yeah, so I really like that aspect of my job as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm aware that we're sort of fairly close to probably wrapping up here, but I was just going to get like, ask you a couple of things. Um, yeah, so just your, your thoughts on the sort of landscape at the moment with regards to treating bloodborne viruses and managing them and, and that sort of thing. Where, where do you think things are heading and how do you think they're going? Oh, look, it's so different to the way it was. I mean, you look at things like... Um, and it's not just bloodborne viruses, but that crossover between sexual and bloodborne, uh, like HIV and Hep B, for example, are both mm -hmm. bloodborne and, and sexual. Hep C um, is bloodborne, but you know the technology that that we now have in, in treatment of these, we will hopefully have a vaccine eventually for mm -hmm. things like HIV. Mm -hmm. uh, we can now cure Hep C. It's a completely different story than it was even less than 10 years ago. Mm. Um, um, there's so much hope and, and optimism around all of this. Mm. Um, ultimately, here at Hepatitis WA, um, you know, it was started in somebody's lounge room 30 years ago by a group of people affected by Hep C after Hep C was first identified. Um, um, and... We've come a long way with that now. Um, and so ultimately here at HEP WA, I guess our mission is to put ourselves out of work. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Try and cure the yeah. virus. And, yeah. yeah. And you, you said there was, there was a goal by 2030? 2030, yeah. Australia signed up to a goal to eliminate HEP C by mm -hmm. 2030. I mm -hmm. think that there's a long way to go for that. And yeah. um, I'm not being pessimistic in any way. I don't think we're going to reach it. Right. But um, I think we've made enormous strides and we're certainly ahead of the curve when you talk about um the world at large yeah um we're punching above our weight yeah yeah other western countries definitely have much higher rates and absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so there's a lot of optimism all around this and yeah. i i look back at you know how things were when i was uh, a very young man and mm -hmm. now in my 50s how different it is yeah. and um yeah I can I can go to bed and sleep, lie yeah. straight in bed. It's great. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I guess yeah. finally, um, what are your plans in the future? What have you got sort of ambitions for? Um, I really enjoy where I am. You never know where this job is going to take you. Um, but I'm also uh, doing a lot of writing and I'm doing um, a lot of lived experience talks. So I'm doing a lived experience um uh, uh, speakers course at the moment which I'm finding fascinating um, and so eventually um, I'd like to um, expand into areas of dealing with grief and loss because I've certainly had my fair share of that throughout my life and um, and I don't think that you ever get over those things but you learn really good ways of living with them, incorporating them into your being and your life. And I'd like to be able to share that that knowledge with people. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing this course, just to um, hone those skills. But I've always been a writer. I write poetry. I write I write stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I guess my one big personal goal is to get my book written. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. yeah. Yeah. Do, do you publish any of your stuff anywhere or is it accessible? Uh, I have anywhere? a website actually, yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah, nopantspd.com. All right. Nopantspd. Yeah. Okay, .com. 
All right. <laughs> Courtney, do you have any final questions on where I've asked the last couple? <laughs> no, I no, I think uh, you know, you've asked all the questions I was gonna ask anyway. So um yeah, I think this has been a very riveting chat, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. it's been very uh interesting to hear your perspectives. And it's good that I, I think we there are some high high level goals for hepatitis WA. Um and even if they aren't achieved, I think having those there are just allows everything mm. to to blossom and it's something to strive for and it's yeah it's really cool work that yeah it really really is and um i you know i i know i speak for my colleagues as well you know you can you can have a really crazy week or a crazy day yeah. and you go home at the end of the day and and you have this feeling i've done something yeah. worthwhile mm. and i think that a lot of community organizations charities like we are um non-government stuff have that mm. um it's really important i'm really really mm. pleased to be um you know a staff member at hepatitis wa it's an amazing organization yeah mm. well, i think i'll speak for both of us when i say when we leave after recording with you today we would have thought we've done something worthwhile today too yep. so, <laughs> thank <laughs> you very much yeah <laughs> thanks very much for your time yeah, Pete. it's been you. great chatting and yeah all the best for the future thank you mm. and to you And that was our conversation with Pete Townsend. He's got so many interesting stories. He's yeah, he was fantastic to talk to. I thought um, just his perspective, um, particularly living in the eighties when yep. he did, um, being the type of person that he is. Mm. Uh, such interesting stories, uh, just crazy. I mm. don't know. Yeah, I'm sure life. Yeah, life then was probably. Well, I know it was very different to how it is now. Yeah, you know. So, uh, and especially being from kind of a minority group, as mm-hmm. as they were viewed, um, you know, and treated differently to other people, and even his experience with his own doctor. Yeah, who was also a gay doc. You know, was also a member of the gay community. Um, you know, being really judgmental and whatnot, um, and then coincidentally and ironically passing away you know from the from, <laughs> shouldn't laugh yeah oh, from the very yeah. kind of issues that pete was being treated for you know yeah um so interesting. but yeah just growing up in that time and you know contracting hiv before there was an effective treatment or a healthy you know tolerable treatment available um must have just been you know it's hard, it's hard to put yourself in his shoes, you know, yeah, dealing with absolutely. that. absolutely. And I, I think one of this is a, a perspective that we actually don't get to hear about that often, mm. um, mainly because a lot of people who were gay during that time died. Mm. So you're not going to be able to find those voices very often. Yeah. So the fact that Pete was willing and, like, passionate about talking about his story I think is such a good thing yeah um and then learning about like the interaction between HIV and hep C yeah um that was fascinating as well and then the the history of how those treatments were developed and implemented and then suddenly life became much easier once yeah. those treatments were available it's, yeah such an interesting story yeah so yeah we touched on so many things yeah and, uh, <laughs> it was a lot in, a, in an hour or so yeah um but yeah we hope everyone's enjoyed the conversation maybe been a bit challenged by it yeah. because that's the whole point of talking with people with lived experience like that is that 
we try and get a sense of some of the challenges that they've had to deal with. Yeah. And it hopefully teaches us all a few lessons about resilience and, you know, Absolutely. getting through tough patches and that sort of thing. Yeah. And if you want to volunteer with HEP C, you know, yeah. that would definitely be a worthwhile project and yep. you'd be able to understand more about what these kind of um, non-for-profits do and the kind of... I, I certainly know that, like, if you'd volunteer for something like that, you'd certainly feel good afterwards because you are helping people. Yeah. Um. In a yeah, in a way that you can see. Well, I'm pretty sure. So we we walked into Hepatitis WA's offices, mm. and I'm pretty sure that first room we walked into was the needle and syringe program. Yeah. Room, which didn't look. It just looked like an admin office. To yeah. Be honest. So it's literally, <laughs> literally people walking in off the street. Yeah. Into their office. Um, so you really are at the coalface, yeah. you know, when, when you're working with agencies like that. Any anyone and everyone is going to come in. Mm. So, yeah, fascinating. Um, we'll obviously put the details of hep, hepatitis WA on our, in our show notes, so yep. you can read a bit more about them and get in touch with them if you want. Yeah. And did Pete say he had a book? Yeah. So we'll put we, we're yeah. going to put a link. He actually sent me his. Oh, email awesome. address, mm-hmm. no, not his email address, his website address. Yeah. So I will put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, so go check that out. As yeah. Well. So you can you can read up a bit more about his book. Mm. Um, but yeah, as as always, Courtney, um, how do people get in touch with us? You can tweet us at health means what. You can email us meaningofhealth at outlook.com and you can contact us on Facebook as well if you look up Meaning of Health podcast. So please contact us. We'd love to see your thoughts, comments, feelings, whatever you'd like to say. Um, we would love to read it and respond back. Um, and if you have any potential uh, guests for our podcast, let us know as well. Yep. We w- welcome all suggestions. Um, but yeah, thanks once again, Courtney. Thank you. And we'll be back in your feed with another episode soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.